Good morning, church. Oh, man, don't have Mark sing your favorite song before you get up to preach. <clears throat> I'm hugging you anyway, man. I love you. Love you. Uh, um, thank you not just for singing it, ah, but for living it out in this church. Uh, that song is you to me. Sorry, someone's like, why is this guy getting up crying? Um, <laughs> you haven't heard me preach yet, sorry. Um, honestly, if you are just joining us, you are at a beloved, amazing, welcome place. Not, there's great people here, but it's not because of that. It's because God is great in this place. And people open themselves up for the Spirit of God to be real in this place. So if you are a visitor and you are coming looking for a place where you don't have to fake it, and you won't be discarded, you've come to the right place. So we want to welcome you here. I want to begin just by reading the text, the Advent text we're looking at today. Uh, sorry, I got a lot going on in my head here. Uh. Philippians chapter 1, verse 3. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm, first time I preached, I was sweating all over the place. This time, I'm going to cry all over the place. Again, you got, here I am. Here we go. Philippians 1, verse 3. I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion into the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. Whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, Paul says, all of you share in God's grace with me. And God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, I pray with a psalmist, may the words of my heart and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Have you ever been through a season of a life where you felt boxed in by life itself? Have you ever felt boxed in, constrained in some way, held back in some way, lonely or distant in some way? Have you ever felt that way before? I remember, Melly and I were just college freshmen at Virginia Tech, and we, we at that time had a brand new campus minister, and to get this image, you got to picture this guy in your mind. His name is Roy. He's about six what, Melly, six three? something like that, 250, 60 pounds. He's a big man. And uh, we decided to play sardines. Has anybody ever played this game before? Sardines is a reverse hide and seek. So hide and seek, you know, you go and hide and all that. And, and you know, one person hides, you, you want to be the first one to find them. In sardines, it's the opposite. One person goes and hides, and then the only goal is just to not be the last one. And so you go and hide, and then when you find them, you don't say anything, you hide with them. 
And so it becomes funny. The more, more people that are there, you're trying to be quiet and you're laughing and giggling. It's usually in a weird space. So if you can imagine this in your mind, we went out to play sardines in our college group at, at an elementary school, and they had one of those things. I don't think, you know, lawyers made all the fun stuff go away on playgrounds, but this is one you could climb up, and you picture like a big metal box that you climb eight to ten feet off the ground, and the first person went and hid inside of that. So, you know, we went there, and a few more came, a few more came, and I'll never forget this. Remember, Melanie, Roy comes up, 6'3", 260 pounds. He looked in, he said, I'm coming in. <laughs> and we were sardines in that moment. Have you ever felt boxed in, right? And we laugh about that. There are times when we do it on purpose, and, you know, we're escape rooms and all those kind of things. But here's the reality. All of us have experienced times when we feel hemmed in and constrained and boxed in by life, and it's not a game. It's not fun. For some of us, we have those times, and it may just be physically, where you feel constrained and held back by what's going on in your body or the body of someone you love, a medical condition or something. Others may feel that boxed-in feeling with the finances in their lives. You don't want to get rich or anything like that. You just, you just want always have to live paycheck to paycheck or credit card to credit card and keep pushing it. Or you have a vision for what you want to do for God and the world, and it's not happening at that moment. Some of us feel boxed-in spiritually from time to time. You ever feel stuck? Again, you're going to heaven. You know you're going to heaven. You're saved by the grace of God, but you want to be more, and you just feel stuck and kind of treading water in the same place again and again it may be purpose any number of reasons we all have been there here's the great thing scripture's been there too you're not alone if you felt boxed in about life scripture takes us to that place too because paul as he writes these words opening his most joyful letter perfect passage for the day where we turn to joy. Paul is turning to joy, but understand, Paul is writing these words of joy and confidence from a boxed-in place, literally. He's in prison. We don't know whether it's Rome or Ephesus. Scholars debate about exactly where it is, but we know he is confined for the gospel, and he writes these words in that time. And I just want to pay close attention to what Paul does in the confined spaces when he is feeling lonely and disillusioned, perhaps, in his boxed-in face. What Paul does in this place may give us a hint for what we might do in those times where we feel boxed in by life. What, is, what does he do first? Notice what he does first. He celebrates what God has started he celebrates what God has started. He said, I thank my God every time I remember you. And he is very personal. His most personal letter, his most joyful letter, the closest connection emotionally you see between Paul and, and the people that he's writing to seems to be the book of Philippians. And so he's going to talk a lot about people. And I'll mention a few folks here too. But understand where his gaze is. As he's talking about the church, he's looking at Jesus. And he's celebrating that God has started something in them. And he says, I remember, I remember, I remember. I, I was just sitting in my office. I've studied this text many times. I've taught it before. And I just remember sitting there over the text. And I'm thinking, wow, can you imagine Paul sitting in a jail cell? And maybe he's feeling boxed in and he's feeling lonely or disconnected. Where does Paul go in the boxed in moment? He starts remembering his church. Isn't that amazing? That's where you go. I remember you. 
I'm not sure that's the first place I would go when I feel boxed in. I'd start uh, complaining and bitter. But no, he, he sees faces and he remembers faces. And I love this line here. He says, listen, God began a good work in you. He began a good work in you. And I can't help thinking as a Jewish scholar, Jewish rabbi, as a Jewish Pharisee, Paul means something very specific, has something specific in his mind when he says God's good work. Where have we heard that before? God's good work. I I can't help thinking that Paul's drawing on creation imagery when he says this about the church. I mean, think about it. Where elsewhere in the Bible have we heard a description of God's work is good? Not once, but seven times. When you open the pages of Scripture, you find God working on the first day, and he looks at it, and he called it what? It's good. And the second day, he looked at it, he called it good, and good, and good, and good, and good. And then he looks at all of it when he's finished, and he says, it is very what? Good. So Paul, listen, Paul's doing something deeper here than just saying, oh yeah, God started something. God began a good work in this church, he says to the Philippian people. In other words, Paul is saying, Have you ever thought about this? Anytime a church comes together and comes into existence and grows and endures, that is nothing less than the miraculous cosmic work of the creator God to make it happen. And he says, I remember. And Paul has specific faces in mind that he remembers as he's celebrating what God started there. And we know some of them. If you want to have fun, read this and then go back and read through. I'll just quickly throw out a couple of these faces but go read through Acts chapter 16 and you see we don't always have this but you see the birth of this church you know how this started it started with a vision by the way they send you know the Holy Spirit sends them into a place the gospel had never been before and the first convert is kind of an incredible powerful woman in the textile industry she is an amazing wealthy powerful woman her name is Lydia I love this lady. She doesn't wait for the men to get it going. They don't have enough men to start a synagogue, so she starts a prayer group, or at least she's part of a prayer group outside of the city of Philippi, and Paul starts there because he didn't have men in a synagogue to get started with. So Lydia becomes the founding member of the Philippian church. So picture, that's your first member of the church. The second one, can you imagine literally the other side of the tracks, is a slave girl fortune teller. So picture kind of wild, whatever words you use for new agey, you know, celestial spirituality woman. And almost out of irritation, Paul, you know, casts the demon out of her. And she becomes the second convert. Literally as far away economically or socially as you could be from Lydia. So there's the first two founding members. And then who's the last one? Again, read through Acts 16, you find a grizzled old world war, war veteran. Roman war veteran who ends up being a security guard in the prison. We know him as the Philippian jailer, and he's the third convert. So I I want you to think about that starting group. Here's your pilot group to plant a church. (laughs) Powerful businesswoman in the community. Crazy, um, you know, fortune teller down on the, you know, inner city streets. And then an old war vet that's working in the jail. There's your founding church. Listen to me. It took cosmic creative power to make that a church. He began a good work in you. God said, let there be the Philippian church. And it happened through the lives of these people. God began a good work in you. I want you to hear this. Don't miss the miracle that it is to be a church. Don't miss the miracle that it is to be a church 
of Jesus Christ. I love it if you haven't looked at this recently or looked at this at all, go on our website and look at the history that our discernment team put together. A fresh telling of the history of what God did to start this church. It started with 17 members in 1833 with a group of people that said, we want to unite and not divide. We don't want denominations and the name on the church side to push people out. We want to come together. And those 17 people became the Church of Jesus Christ here in Franklin, Tennessee. And was born out of the hearts of people who prayer walked this land, who believed in a vision bigger than what was going on in the chaotic world around them. Don't you understand? You sitting in this room is a miracle of the creative work of God. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Paul says, I remember. I remember that from the first day. He pictures those faces from the first day. I remember that from the first day until now, and I celebrate the work of God, and I remember too. I remember right in that hallway over there, my first feeling of what this church was about was Marion Parker, <laughs> who was, did the best thing she could do. She didn't even talk to me or look at me. She honored my wife. <laughs> she said, aren't you that lady who won a car? Yes, she did, <laughs> with her creativity. You're the one who won a car. Yes. I remember from the first day drawing in and honoring my wife. I remember out in the hallway just over there, some of you in the youth group honoring our older son, David. It, smallest thing, but I was standing there when I heard several of our guys say, hey, David, would you come out with us? Uh, somebody got a new truck. We want to go just look at the truck. And they pulled him in from the very beginning. There's some folks that will come here today, don't even come to this church anymore. But our sons, our youngest son, Luke, bonded together. They drew him in and they have come into community together. And still, even last week, as the people surrounded our youngest son, we, we felt that from the first day. Or I think, Mark, I'll never stop thanking God for you. The first Christmas, you invited our daughter, who plays the flute as a passion, to do that for Jesus Christ. And she stood on this very podium and played her flute for the glory of God in our Christmas Eve service from the first day. I remember how you pull people in. And Paul, when he feels confined and boxed in, sees faces to celebrate what God has started. God's creative, miraculous, cosmic work was started in this place in 1833, and he is still right here doing his thing. What is this incredible work that God does? I believe the work of God that Paul is celebrating is a shared common life. Shared common life. He mentions this again and again. First in verse 5 and then again in verse 7. And he'll say it in your English translation in different words. But he talks about a partnership in the gospel. He talks about sharing together in God's grace. He says it again and again and again. Here's, here's what Paul's saying. I'm not just celebrating any random work. I'm celebrating the fact that God has brought us together as partners in the gospel and the grace and the good news of Jesus Christ. We're not just here as a country club. Paul says, I brought scatter, God brought scattered different people from all over, different economic places and different social places and different experiences and gathered them together in one family to participate together, to partner together in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, perhaps you've heard this word before. We often talk about it in Greek. The word is koinonia. Often, it's translated as fellowship. And we've watered down that word so much. We use the word fellowship 
to talk about potlucks, which, pause, is a holy thing, is it not? I believe potlucks are straight from heaven and Jesus, right? I, what, what, what song did I ask you to sing over? What, oh, I forget. Yes, come, all things are ready, come to the feast. That would be a beautiful, beautiful song for the potluck mode. Listen, here's the thing, I love potlucks. I love fellowship dinners, but that's not what this word is about. Do you know in the first century, this word koinonia was actually a business term for a specific, very connected business partnership. And these koinonia partners would share two things. They would share in the work, and they would share in the expense. They wrote the check, and they rolled up their sleeves together. And Paul says, we are partners in the gospel of Jesus. We work together. We suffer together. We celebrate together. And we are invested in this together. They all have skin in the game with the gospel of Jesus. Paul writing it from a jail cell. They writing it while they're sending a check to take care of him. They didn't have a system where in the jails that they would feed you and take care of you. So if you wanted to eat and live, somebody else had to do it. And their partnership was that tangible and specific. They all had skin in the game. It's a partnership in the gospel this shared common life. Here's another way to think about it. In scripture, the word koinonia is often takes on the flavor of what it is they're sharing. So in the book of Acts, they're sharing financially. People are selling their houses so other people can live and eat. Sometimes as here, they're sharing in common sufferings and pain. Other times they're celebrating an incredible joy as God's gospel is giving birth. Look in the Thessalonian letter, all over the region, they They celebrate what they share together, God's common life. That's what fellowship is. We're all in this together. We have skin in the game. We're working and we're commonly investing in each other's lives. I I reserve this passage, or at least the word of this passage for very few people. even mentioned it to a couple of you. I think about you. Looking at some of them, I think about you. I don't just say this for anybody. I don't think Paul did either. He said there are certain folks in his his ministry that were co-laborers, that were partners in the gospel. He'd been working for five years with a Catholic church. Can you imagine they take a, a Church of Christ chaplain and pastor and let them work with them for the last five years, and I spent Friday with them for the last time, and, and I read this passage. I said, I'm preaching on this Sunday, but I want to say it to you too. I'm not talking about me. I'm just saying, who would you include on this? Who are the partners in the gospel? Who have invested together with you, who have gone in it with you, who are all in with you? I'm looking at you. All over the room, we've come in, this, we've partnered together in this work. And it's all over the place. This is what I love about this church. We don't just talk about it. You're not just here to check a religious box. You are here to partner for a purpose. Not just to take up space and say, oh, we did our religious thing. We are partners in the gospel together from the very first day until now. And do you realize this is the great invitation that we can offer to the Franklin community You don't have to be boxed in alone. (laughs) You don't have to feel those distant moments and those disconnected moments. You don't feel them alone. Paul was in a jail cell, but he wasn't alone when he was there. He had a partnership in the gospel of Jesus. And so whether he was in the jail cell, he said, or whether they're out there doing their thing, the gospel message was spreading. So even in the boxed in place, he could celebrate and have joy because they partnered together for the sake of of the gospel of Jesus. And that's our work. Together to model what this shared common life looks like for the world. 
And then here's what I, I want to say for all of those times when you're feeling that sardine kind of experience. Here's the great promise of the text. It's an Advent promise. The God that we worship, our God is a finisher. We celebrate that he started, but he doesn't just start. Our God finishes what God starts. Isn't it beautiful here? Part of it, again, we can learn how to deal with these things the way that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to do it. He didn't just think that. He spoke it out. He said, I'm confident of this. Isn't this a glorious line? He who began a good work in you, who did that cosmic creative work, will finish it on the Advent day. That's what he's talking about. The next Advent. The day of Christ. When Christ returns and fixes all the brokenness of the world, God will finish what he started with those three crazy people back at the beginning of the Philippian church. God will finish what he started. If it feels unfinished now, it's okay because God will finish what he started with 17 people in 1833. He is not done with his creative work in this church. He's a finisher. We celebrate that. And I love the fact that the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to speak it. What do you do when you feel boxed in and confined? Speak out your confidence in the promise of God. Not on what we can do, not in our wisdom and insight, but the promise of God. We speak it out. We claim it. And what is it that God's going to finish in the Philippian church and what he will finish in us. Paul spends the first part of it celebrating what God's already done, but then in joyful anticipation, whether he is executed in his prison stay here or not, he knows that God's going to finish this. What is he going to finish? He prays that your love, that's already there, God planted it, that was God's work, will abound more and more. Just take that in. Paul says, you're incredible. It is the most joyful letter. He has the least critical things to say of this church than any church he writes to. But he says, it's not enough because God started it. But he's going he's to overflow the love of Jesus Christ in you to spill out to those all around you. That's my prayer. By the way, again, in our culture, we've always got to remind ourselves of this. When it says love, it's not just a, a warm feeling. He does talk about that. He just doesn't use heart. He uses guts. That's earlier in the text. I long for you, he says, with the guts of Jesus. No, the love here, he, he specifically says, the love's going to overflow in such a way that it gives you knowledge and depth of insight. Like you'll know more about the God that you love. You'll actually know more. The truth matters here. You'll know more about the one who created you in the first place. And then it goes on to say, this love will overflow in such a way. Listen to this language. My translation says, so that you can discern what is best. Here's a better translation. So that you can recognize what really matters. It's a literal translation. How about that? In this day and age, with what goes on in the world and what some churches get caught up in, isn't this a great prayer? We have the love that God put in this place from the very beginning. But how about... God grows it even more to the point where we know with the heart of Jesus what really matters. We'll die on the right hills. We'll stand up for the right things. What really matters. And then he says all this, all this goes from a, to a point where, where you see the fruit of the life of Jesus coming out in the lives of people. I love this picture. You see this? So here's his prayer, that your love overflows. And, and so here's a summary way to think about it. I, I, I even wrote it down. I love the way one writer put it when he said, God won't stop, my language, until you are a visible picture of love. 
to the hurting world. Isn't that great? God is not going to stop until your lives, not about you, about him, are a visible picture of the love of God to the hurting world around you. So now go read the rest of the book, and what you'll find is Paul gives some visual aids. You know what his visual aids are for where he, what he wants to pray for them? Himself. He says, I'm suffering for the gospel here, and I'm I'm joyful. Timothy, he sends Timothy there, a guy named Epaphroditus. He says, you can see the faces of people who are living a little bit further down the road of where I'm praying that you will be. They're all visible pictures of the love of God in a hurting world. And then, of course, we have one of the most glorious passages in all of the Bible. And now you understand what Paul's doing. He's giving him an example. It's about Jesus. And he doesn't just say it, he sings it in Philippians 2. Right? Here's a God who had everything, but didn't exploit it and grasp being God's very nature, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, went all the way to death. He said, that's a picture of what I'm praying for you, to get to the place where the love of God grows so much, you cannot help but to pour out your lives for the people around you. Paul says, that's my prayer, that the fruit of God will be evident in very specific lives in the church that he's picturing as he's sitting in that jail cell. Our God's a finisher, and he's going to finish in your life. Isn't that amazing? I love the fact that uh, it was a few weeks ago, in a span of 24 hours, God wrote the end of my sermon. I'll give him credit, give him credit for anything that's good. But even just a few moments ago, Melanie and I just kept realizing, oh God, this, you were behind all of this. Span of 24 hours, this is something that happened from a Sunday to a Monday. I knew I was going to be teaching on this text, and I saw a picture of Paul's prayer. Remember Paul's prayer, that your love abounds and overflows so that we see the fruit of the life of Jesus in actual visible people and places. The first one came from this young man. I talked about him before. But um, it was, I think, the week after, I know it was the week after I shared that we were leaving and taking the preaching job in Texas, and um, we'll be leaving in a little bit. He said, I tried to find you last week, couldn't find you. And uh, I went over to the communion room, and I was washing my coffee cup out. Conley went and found me. That's the first thing that happened. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a moment. The next day, I got to see this man. Our friend Gene Hatcher. Um, went out to see him at his place. By the way, I love, I love this picture because I've said it and I mean it. And those of you that have been in our class know this. I said, Gene is my co-teacher and he always, always has first right to speak. He really does. I mean it, right? Isn't that true? And I, but it's awesome. And, and so I would tell him, look, anytime you, it is, you get the podium. And one time, he literally did it, because he talked to me after class, and he said this great thing, and I said, you remind me next week, because I want everybody to hear what you just shared. And I started teaching, and he said, hey, you, you remember? I'm like, oh, you bet. And so I get down, and he's teaching, right? He's teaching up front. Or Jordan, you remember this picture? This is my favorite, Gene. <laughs> favorite picture, isn't it, Jordan? Gene and Wanda leaning into the Word of God. Why, why do I put these two people together. You put that last picture up, if you would. Why do I think about the two of you as an embodiment of this passage? Because on that day, Conley went and found me. He walked in that room over there, and he spoke words of encouragement to me. And you know what he said? I want to pray for you. 
By the way, I had no idea when I'm telling this story. It's their birthdays, both of them. That's is a God thing, I'm telling you. <laughs> and he prayed for me. And the next day, I went to visit Gene. And as I'm walking out the door, what did Gene do? Can you guess? He prayed for our families. We made this transition. I think about this. Think about this. I'm not, Paul was not just talking about people. It wasn't just a sappy moment to talk about people. He was looking at Jesus Christ and he saw the fruit of love spilling out in actual visible lives. Here's what I know about this church. There's a lot of things, but here are the two things that I will carry with me the rest of my life. Number one, this church was born and is sustained by prayer. The ground was prayed over before there was ever a building here. And isn't it interesting that two people, listen to me, 80 three years apart did the same thing for somebody on the way out the door they prayed for them second thing that i cherish about this church that is the overflowing love of jesus christ is every person in this room is invited to use their gifts to lead and to share every generation matters I told you we came here in part because they took 10 or 15 minutes in a service to honor miss christine i thought thank you god for a church that honors our young people and those who have walked with Jesus for a long time. And I love that we had, I wrote 12, and I forgot you're 13 today, a 13-year-old pray for the minister. We got a 90-year-old man teaching Bible class, and that's the way it ought to be. And when I look at fruit like that, here's what I know with all of my soul, that the God who began a good work in you, and we see it, on faces every day will most certainly carry it on to completion in the advent of Jesus Christ. And we celebrate you, Father God. We celebrate you. You gave birth to this church. You made this happen. You made this the place where literally miracles of human life and relationship take place. You made this a place where people broken and disconnected could come and find their purpose and passion. You made this to be a spiritual family where we genuinely love and care for each other of every stripe. You did it in the Philippian church. You brought people together. It's nothing short of a miracle. You did it again here, and you are not finished in the work of the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ. We celebrate you. We worship you. We honor you and we love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. And I'm sorry, I did it. I forgot to call you up, Mark. I'm